Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Media Business Podcast. I'm Matt Mueller, the editor of Screen International, and this week we are at the Cannes Film Festival. This year marks the 72nd running of the world's most prestigious film competition, which brings together the top movers and shakers in world cinema. In this episode, you'll hear from producer Rebecca O'Brien, making her 12th visit to Cannes with Ken Loach, who's in competition with Sorry We Missed You. Loach is the director who's been in competition more than any other here at Cannes, and he's already won the Palme d'Or twice. Can he do it a third time this year? Signs are certainly good. I'll also be speaking to Gabrielle Stewart, the managing director of international film sales company Hanway Films, Liz Miller of PR agency Premier PR, and Lawrence Atkinson, CEO of the public relations and communications firm DDA. But first, I'm delighted to be joined by Wendy Eyde and Jonathan Romney, two of Screen International's very busy team of critics on the ground in Cannes this year, who are going to take us through what they've seen so far in the first few days of the festival. Well, I've seen everything apart from the Ken Loach, because only the the, uh, select few have seen that so far. So I'm looking forward to that immensely, because uh, the early secret word on that is very positive. so yeah, I've seen everything else. And yeah, my standout so far is Baccarat, the Brazilian film by Kleber uh, Mendonça Filho. And also uh, he's got a co-director, Juliano Dornelles, who he has worked with before as a production designer. Now they're working together on this project, which has been, I think they've been working on it for about 10 years. And now it's finally come to fruition. But it does actually even so feel quite timely to me in, in the themes that it's dealing with. I really don't want to talk too much about it because, and I've already made a point of this in my review, is not giving away a very key thing, and I think other people are discussing it. But I would say the themes that, there are many themes, it taps into Brazilian politics, it taps into the sort of the wealth divide, economic colonialism from the US and Europe. There's a lot going on there, and I think perhaps if you're Brazilian, you probably pick up on even more. There is a very key thing that I feel uncomfortable discussing, as I suspect other people will do, but I think actually if you go to the film knowing it, it probably spoils it a little bit. It's a small town, it's like a one-street town, little community of people. It's quite vibrant, even though it's small. Um, and one day they notice that they've been erased from all the digital maps. It's no longer, there's no longer any kind of satellite record of it. And so what then happens is a direct consequence or is linked to this. Um, but it's a film that sort of, it draws on you know, the Western, it's drawing on kind of Brazilian genre cinema from the 50s and 60s, and it's drawing on you know, John Carpenter. There's a John Carpenter song or track which is used on the, on, on the soundtrack really effectively. Um, so, yeah, that's one that really stood out for me so far. 
And uh, Kleber was last year in 2016 with Aquarius, uh, and Sonia Braga's also in this film, isn't she? Yes, she's in it, uh, unrecognisable, because she's so sort of uh, soignée in Aquarius, she's very elegant, and this one she's quite demented, um, but powerful. Um, perhaps I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of her, and I think she's one of the characters, because it's, it is an ensemble piece, and there is no real central character that guides us through the story and I perhaps would have liked to see maybe a couple of the characters develops a little bit more fully and she's one of them but yeah she's she's great in it so Wendy's standout is that also a standout for you Jonathan or it wasn't entirely I I loved um, Mendoza Fio's previous films and this one didn't impress me as much in fact it felt very confused um, and I didn't necessarily expect the same thing because he's basically made the city of Recife the centre of his universe in the first two and again he's in the northeast of Brazil but um, it's a rural drama the trouble for me is it felt very confused I mean I really enjoyed the first hour where I thought we were getting something like um, almost like Brazilian Costa Rica, not quite that knockabout, but an ensemble drama in which you have these characters in a small milieu, village environment, who are you know completely themselves and live to their own rules. And you start to work out the relationships between characters. But as the film goes on, he seems to lose interest in who those characters are and what their relationships are. And you know there seems to be a whole backstory involving you know the 94-year-old grandmother who has just died and the Sonia Braga character. And then that is suddenly dropped, and I started to feel that, well, maybe there was a three-hour movie that was originally made and that this has been stripped back to the bare bones. Then, of course, the film takes a complete left turn, and I won't say too much about it, except that Udo Kier is in the cast list. Um, and he, his presence kind of introduced for me... Um, a kind of western slash thriller strand which also came laden with a certain amount of very, I felt, heavy-handed satire about colonialism and, you know, American desire to consume the world. And also, of course, you know, as Wendy said, it's about Brazilian politics and it, it was conceived long before Bolsonaro came to power. But one of the things about it is that it is, uh, it says it's set in the near future and there's a moment when you see on TV um, coverage of live executions in Sao Paulo. So clearly it's timely enough to be giving us a warning this is where Brazil might be going. It's a fascinating film, it's crammed with ideas, absolutely didn't work for me and in many ways I found it quite kind of misconceived and misformed and, and even at times ugly but uh, no one could conceivably be bored. So if that wasn't the one then what for you so far of the competition titles is, has been uh, your standout? The competition title that really knocked me out in, I don't know if knocked out is a term because it works a very sort of enigmatic charm, is um, Atlantique by Mati Diop. She's known partly for her shorts, she's also known for um, her acting work in France uh, in Claire Denis' 35 Shots of Rum and uh, Antonio Campos' Paris thriller Simon Killer. But this is her first feature, and, and for me it's kind of way beyond her shorts. Um, it's really fascinating, and it, it's set in Senegal. It starts off um, on a building site where these labourers are building this kind of futuristic 
tower block. I wondered if it was real. Feature is a Dubai-style tower block. Um, and they're not getting paid, and eventually one of these young men meets up with his girlfriend. So it starts off, you think you're getting kind of Afro-loach. Then it uh, turns into a kind of star-crossed romance because she loves him, he's the poor worker, but she's engaged to this rich guy that her family want her to marry. And then social realities come into play, and um, it uh, involves you know Africans trying to get to Spain in, in search of you know a better life. And then it takes a completely mysterious direction. A sort of supernatural element comes in. You're not quite sure what you're seeing. You're not quite sure whether it's dream, but it's very very beautifully sustained. It continues to be very mysterious. Um, there's a policeman character comes in with his own kind of strange narrative thread. Visually, it's amazing. I mean, it's got this kind of metallic glow to it. The colours are extraordinary. You get these night skies, which just kind of gleam like chrome, and these amazing kind of dark metallic colours. Um, the music's very odd as well. It doesn't feel quite... It doesn't feel 100% African. There's a kind of Cora theme, but then you get these sort of distorted sort of string synthesizers. And it's absolutely mesmerising. It is very much a female film as well. It's very much from the heroine's point of view. I would be very surprised if we saw anything in, in the festival that quite resembles it. But it certainly doesn't resemble any African film I've seen. It's really something quite strange and beautiful. It really, really wasn't for me at all. Um, I admired the ambition of it, but I don't think that she has the confidence as a filmmaker yet to, to pull it off. I felt that the timing was uh, off. There were scenes which seemed to just sort of meander along for no real purpose. Um, I think it was very beautiful, but I, I felt it was muddled. And um, yes, I guess the point is that it's meant to be muddled, but it was muddled in a, in a way which I, I didn't enjoy. Um, I felt like I was having to work way too hard with it. Um, it wasn't really giving me much at all. But then I have just walked out of it and sometimes, you know, perhaps you need to process films and then take a little bit of time to get to grips with them. But yes, my first impression was no, not for me at all. Taking a slightly bigger picture view, what did you feel coming into the festival? As always, you know, I, I like the fact that there's a, a mixture. Maybe they don't need to always give competition slot to the same old people, but you know, we'll see when Tarantino shows his film whether it's something that should be in competition or not. Well, I have to say personally, um, I, I'm not remotely bothered that Malik or Tarantino are in the competition. Um, I saw a clip from the Malik film and the showreel uh, on opening night, and I thought, oh dear, it did seem to uh, presage that kind of Terence Malik film again. Um, Tarantino, I'm afraid, has worn me out for years. So I, I always wanted to discover something new in competition, and, and I think this year could be exciting. Jessica Hausner is, is a genuinely unpredictable director, so it's really interesting to see what she's going to come up with in Little Joe. Um, it's interesting that Ira Sachs, who's generally been regarded as a sort of, you know, safe and sound Sundance director, is in there. Um, and I can't wait to see what he's come up with, because I think he's often underrated and misunderstood. Celine Sciamma in, um, you know, really coming into the uh, limelight in competition for the first time. It's going to be and making what looks like a 19th-century costume drama. So that's certainly going to be interesting. Um, 
and I'm very intrigued by the Wild Goose Lake by Diao Yunnan, who made Black Hole Thin Ice, I think. It, anyway, it was, it was one of the standouts in Berlin a few years ago. And um, this has been described in the opening press conference by uh, Thierry Frémaux as being something like Chinese Fritz Lang. Certainly, the clip we saw had a fair bit of gunplay in it, and um, I, I think it looks incredibly appetizing. Really looking forward to that. And what are you most excited about, Wendy? What's, what are you looking forward to? Celine Sciamma, that's the thing that I'm most excited about. I have, I have such an intense memory of seeing girlhood here, and it was just one of those thrilling moments where you just feel that you are seeing the absolute best of world cinema, and that's what we come to count for. And Celine Sciamma with Portrait of a Lady on Fire, uh, Jessica Hausner with Little Joe, then we also have Justine Triette at the end with Sybil, um, and we already had Maddie D up. So that's four female directors in a 21-film lineup. Does Can get too much criticism for not programming enough women directors is it you know as Thierry says is it necessarily his responsibility or is it does it lie further back in the industry I would agree that there's only so much he can do though every can there's always been something I've seen by a female director which I felt could have been in competition it's unfair to blame the programmers entirely because they can only work with what they've got and you could say that this year Cannes has done four times as well as Venice, which only managed to have one female director in competition <laughs> last year, uh, who was Jennifer Kent, although one might say that was not the right film. Yeah, it is puzzling, four out of 21. And, you know, I mean, there are so many women directing in France, in Austria, in other countries, and you wonder whether they are looking far and wide enough. I mean, it would have been interesting to know if Rebecca Zlotowski, for example, had been considered, she's in one of the other sections, whether she'd been considered for a competition slot. Certainly the one of these four, uh, Matty Diop, is really something, and you know, she's putting herself on the map very decisively and I think striking a blow for some new voice in African cinema as well. And Cannes always programs its favourite auteurs. I mean, we've mentioned Quentin Tarantino being back in competition. Terence Malick is here. Uh, Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne are uh, back in competition with their film Young Ahmet. Also a director who was here two years ago with the film Okja, Korean filmmaker Bong Joon-ho, which unfairly for him perhaps kind of uh, was the one of the triggers for the eventual Netflix Cannes Film Festival dispute does Cannes miss having Netflix titles in its competition first of all yes I'm very much excited to see it and the Netflix thing I I think that they can't sustain not having Netflix films it's the future and uh, Netflix is not this big evil entity which is ruining cinema it's actually uh, getting behind and producing some really great cinema um, there are obviously many problems with Netflix and its its model but um, I think it's stupid to pretend that they're not producing great stuff and, and getting behind good stuff and can is a lesser place for not showing Netflix-affiliated films. I think one of the issues between Cannes and Netflix is that Cannes is very much an auteur culture and they always emblazon the name of the director in big letters. The director's name comes loud. On, On Netflix, the problem is it's very easy not to know or indeed to care who the director of something is. You know, if you don't know who's directed it, you have to look for it. And I think a lot of directors have said, well, you know, my film was bought by Netflix and no one knows 
like it's there and no one knows I made it. So I think if you're invested in auto culture as Cam is, you may very well feel that Netflix is doing filmmakers a disservice. As far as Bong Joon-ho goes, I'm really looking forward to the new film. I have been a fan for a long time, although I have to say I could not stand Okja. Um, I think it was really... It was ugly and it was bloated and I felt its satire completely misfired. But he is a really interesting, devious and inventive filmmaker. I'm very much looking forward to it. We've only talked about competition so far, but there is so much more to Cannes with the various different sidebars, Directors Fortnite, uh, obviously not part of Cannes, but then in a certain regard, which is part of Cannes. What have you seen so far that's kind of impressed you and uh, what else are you looking forward to? Well, this morning I saw something which I had no knowledge of. I just, it's one of those wonderful, fortuitous things where you just think, OK, that looks interesting, I'll go. And I managed to get in with sort of one minute to spare. The film is And Then We Danced by Levan Akin. It's a Georgian-Swedish co-production set in Georgia, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a kind of narrative that we have seen many times before. It's a gay sexual awakening set against the backdrop of a not particularly uh, gay-friendly um, environment. So in this case, it's Georgian national dance. A young dancer who has a sort of on-off relationship with a, with a girl, and then a new dancer joins the troupe, and he's brilliant. And there's a competitive rivalry between them, but then there's also something more. I think it's a very elegant example of something that we have seen before. I'll be honest, we've seen it many times before, but it's done so well. The actors are great, the dance is phenomenal, the music's great, the energy to it is great, the sexual tension. And I particularly like one thing about it most of all is that there, there is a, sort of a, a relationship between the two characters in the middle of the film and the whole of the relationship plays out without any dialogue you don't really notice at first but it's so sort of physically expressive uh, it's done through looks it's done through dance it's done through everything apart from dialogue and I loved it I thought it was great what have I seen outside competition um, there's a really interesting Moroccan film which I liked called The Unknown Saint which is a very offbeat comedy by Allah Edin Aljem it's in uh, Critics Week and it's almost like a Moroccan Fargo I mean I say this because it has the same premise of you know the hidden loot but it's also it has that kind of clipped very sort of dry irony it's told extremely economically and it's one of those little kind of out of nowhere not out of nowhere it's out of Morocco but those discoveries that in Cannes you know if people open themselves up to they will see something unexpected and very enjoyable small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rustoleum. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Think of Cannes and one image springs to mind, the red carpet leading up the steps of the Palais des Festivals. To find out what the Cannes red carpet experience is really like for the actors, directors, producers, sales agents, financiers and publicists who flock to the south of France every year, hoping to see their film walk off at the festival's top prize, the Palme d'Or, I spoke to a few people who have been up close and personal with it on more than one occasion. First, I spoke to Rebecca O'Brien, who first started working with Ken Loach in 1990 on the film Hidden Agenda. Since then, they've collaborated on 18 films together, as well as launching their company 16 Films in 2002. I have been in Cannes in competition with Ken uh, Loach for... This is, this is my 12th red carpet, and Ken's 14th. And actually, I do have a producer credit on You Were Never Really Here, the Lynn Ramsey film, which was on the red carpet a couple of years ago, which bounces it up to 13, but I, I wasn't here, so I don't count that. I mean, I think... Ken has the world record of the director most in the competition by quite some way. I'm sure there are other producers, though, who have produced more films than I have. You know, the Cannes red carpet is obviously one of those things that carries great mystique in the film business. So, you know, I think it's probably a uh, ambition for many filmmakers to be on the red carpet. Can you talk a little bit just about what that feeling is like? Well, yeah, I mean, I, you can never take it for granted. And it's something that um, is, is always a thrill. It's a thrill even now, 30 years after I first did it. And... It's just that the French do have a very special way of treating their filmmakers as if they are... I think maybe it's something to do with the fact that they don't actually have royalty and so they sort of uh, put it all into the royal box, as it were, and this this is what they do instead, is uh, roll out the red carpet for their filmmakers. And um, the festival do treat their filmmakers royally. They treat us really, really well and... Uh, the organisation is extraordinarily complex and detailed. And uh, I think I was the first time I was here was with uh, Ken with Hidden Agenda in 1990. And to be honest, I had absolutely no idea what the, my job as producer was supposed to be. I mean, I th- had assumed that I was quite an important person being a producer of a Ken Loach film. But they didn't, nobody wanted to speak to me. And I learned very quickly that what a producer does at the film festival is very different from what the director does. The director and the writer and the actors are there very much to publicise and support the film to the outside world. The producer, I discovered on my first visit, their job is to um, do everything else and to sort of run around setting up the next film and and organizing who goes where and it's like it's honestly organizing a competition film in Cannes is like organizing a wedding 
you have to work out so many details like there are seating plans for the screening there are who gets to come to the dinner before who gets to come to the party afterwards um, who should be at the photo call who should be featured on the red carpet all those things are really what the producer ends up doing so it's like basically being a wedding planner and um, you know you get requests out of the blue from all sorts of different people for tickets people that you never knew you knew come out of the blue then there's a sort of pecking order as who sits where this morning for instance we went to one of the first things you have to do is go to the festival protocol meeting and you go there with your publicity person that's Charles McDonald in our case and then also you have you have to have French publicists so uh, that's Laurence Grenac who's uh, in charge of the French side of things so they are in charge of movements cars and press and everything like that and then so at the protocol meeting you and your sales agent your publicity people your French co-producer uh, your French distributor all meet around this big table and then you discuss how many tickets you're getting and, and then you go away with your, your tickets which are sort of like gold dust and I've just come from our office where we've been sorting the tickets and this year because it could well be our last performance on the red carpet with a Ken Loach film but you never know we've got a large contingent of Loach family a large contingent of Paul Laverty who's the writer his family pushing out all the film people and getting the family in there. What for you is the kind of the most special thing I suppose about being on that red carpet? You can absolutely never take it for granted. You know, you cannot assume that because you're representing a Ken Loach film that it will get into Cannes. The film has got to be up to scratch. Um, you know, you are competing with hundreds and hundreds of other filmmakers for that slot and so we never take it for granted and so the thrill of hearing that you're in Cannes is just amazing so that's the first thrill it's it is very exciting getting into the, the festival cars to drive down the croissette even though you could walk it quicker and then to be decanted in front of the red carpet and it's wonderful going with Ken because Ken is so idolized as a filmmaker here in France our films are very popular in France so you know Ken becomes a film star here in Cannes and the people calling out for him and everything it's lovely and then going up the red carpet with actors that people haven't necessarily heard of is a thrill because these are people like Debbie Honeywood for instance our leading lady she is a fan of red carpets she never thought she would be on a red carpet herself so she's having kittens at the moment just so excited about having a dress like Victoria Beckham has dressed her and Alice Templey's provided a dress as well so and so to go up the red carpet with um, the two kids and and Chris and Debbie um, who've, who've really done very little in terms of filmmaking before to go up the red carpet with them is a thrill it's nice to go with them and nice to go with my mates Paul Laverty and Ken Loach, they're my pals I've been working with them for so long now that um, it's just fun and then I mean the most amazing thing is, is the screening and, and sitting down and you're, they put a spotlight on you when you go in and, and you're in the front row and then at the end of the film they, they throw the spotlight on you and they, they could boo but for us they usually clap and cheer but that's an amazing feeling too it's just you, you know, it's, it's very special. There's nothing like it in the film world. 
I suppose winning an Oscar might be quite nice, but this is such a forum, and it's it's uh, we're treated so specially. And it's what's so nice is the fact that you know ordinary people are, are, are treated specially. It's, it's not essential that you're a film star to go up that red carpet. They just want to celebrate good films and the people in them. And so that's why it's a treat. It's because and I've been up the red carpet with many unknowns in the past. The kids from uh, Sweet Sixteen. Those three kids were in their, they were 17 year, years old, and one of them was Martin Compton, who's now you know last week I saw him presenting a BAFTA award. We discovered Martin. We paid him a fiver to come to the audition. So um, just to have people like that celebrated and not just the big film stars is really special. But to win the Palme d'Or is something else. They don't tell you what prize you've won. So it could be one of maybe, if they ask Ken to come back, it could be one of maybe four or five prizes because it could be Best Director or the Jury Prize or the Grand Prix. But when we won for The Wind That Shakes the Bali, they just said, could Ken come back? And we couldn't get there in time so it's ridiculous I think Pathé organised at the last minute they found a jet a private jet so we we got on the, we had to rush to Luton to get on this private jet which is so absurd given what the films are about it seems so completely bonkers to arrive in a jet and then and we were met on the tarmac by the festival cars with, with uh, motorbike outriders and then you arrive and you're starving, so you go to the local shop and get a sandwich, you know. You know you've won when you don't win the runner-up prize. And the first time that happened, it was just a phenomenal moment when we didn't win the Grand Prix and I looked at Ken and Ken put his head in his hands and he said, Oh, fuck! <laughs> And are you able to notice a big difference between a year that Ken wins the Palme d'Or or maybe a year when Ken has been in competition but, but perhaps hasn't come away with a prize? Is that, is that a significant kind of like difference in terms of what then happens in the market? I think the Can effect probably doubles our sales and box office. And actually even winning a jury prize, depending on who's doing press. I mean, for instance, when we won the jury prize for Angel Share, whoever had won the Palme wasn't I think it was Hanukkah but he wasn't doing publicity so the the press wanted somebody to talk to and Ken was happy to talk so we got a huge amount of additional publicity for winning something so that translates into definite box office effect particularly in France so it's sort of madness but for us it's worth it because it pays dividends more people see our films as a result of coming to Cannes Gabrielle Stewart is Managing Director of London-based sales and finance company Hanway Films, which was first set up more than 20 years ago by Oscar-winning producer Jeremy Thomas. At this year's Cannes, Gabriella is focused on closing deals on a number of new productions on the Hanway slate, including the actor Viggo Mortensen's directorial debut, but she has walked the Cannes red carpet with a number of Hanway titles, including The Killing of the Sacred Deer and How to Talk to Girls at Parties. Actually, with Hanway, we had one of the funnest with uh, how to talk to girls at parties um, because we dressed models with all the crazy latex costumes uh, that the aliens wore in the par- in the film. And uh, uh, I have a little apartment uh, just off the Quasette and all the models got dressed in their latex uh, before the red carpet in my apartment. And I went back to change and I found myself surrounded by 
crazy latex dressed aliens <laughs> and uh, couldn't resist taking a few pictures of them where I looked totally dwarfed by their amazing model like stature and uh, it, it was an extraordinary experience the whole apartment stank of whatever chemical products they were using for, for getting the models in the latex and um, yeah and then we hit the red carpet and it was it was wild and wacky it was great so they, they managed to pass the strict can dress code? Well, they, they uh, no, they passed. Uh, I haven't always passed. Uh, I once very naively in an, one of my first cans went to the red carpet with quite a short dress and boots. And boots are definitely not accepted or definitely weren't accepted then. So I had to run back and change into some normal high-heeled shoes and almost missed the film. The red carpet in Cannes is very special. Um, I'm half French, so there's a little bit more meaning there for me, I think. We, we know, in France, the red carpet in Cannes is known as Les Marches, the steps. And there's something about the steps that you walk up at the top of the Cannes red carpet, which is different to any other red carpet. And you look, and when you go up those steps and you look down, you not only have the view of all the people walking up, up the red carpet, but you have on both sides tons of cameras flashing you've got the cars coming you've got the crowds in the end and there's that perspective at the top of the steps which is completely unique to Cannes and you'll notice anyone who walks up it will turn at the top even though they're being hustled in um, they'll turn around you see you look down and it's it's just better and more glamorous and more special than any other red carpet and I think to just call it a red carpet doesn't work for me like any other French person they are les marches in those moments before you're going to the red carpet, what, what's that feeling like? Well, I think things are much better now that the press screenings aren't before. Um, there was something really wrong um, now that everything is immediate and we don't wait for print, actual print, to read reviews. Now that everything is posted online immediately, um, to have the press already judge a film before the world premiere was took away, it sucked the energy and the air out of the premiere because now at least you can enjoy the premiere and whether it's well received or not, everybody's had their moment. The film had a chance to just be experienced in the palais on that big screen with an audience, no prejudgment, you know, clean, fresh. I'll never forget being part of a film that was so unfairly and brutally kicked to pieces by the critics on Friday night and the press conference with the stars the director was on the Saturday and for them to sit through that press conference and it was all about the press having completely ripped the film to shreds and no one had seen the film yet the actual premiere hadn't happened and it was on the Saturday night and at the end of the premiere it got the most amazing um, applause and standing ovation because I feel people felt it had been so unfair it may not have been the best film they'd seen that year but it was a good film and there was it was there was almost shock at how violent the critic reaction had been so I think it's such a brilliant thing that it's been switched so we can we can keep the well we can retain the sanctity of the world premiere and let everyone enjoy it what does it mean in business terms when you sort of come away with an award or an amazing reception and what, what kind of how does that benefit translate of course, it's very, very meaningful, especially in France and Europe, for the success of the film. And um, it, just, it just means that 
the film in its own right has received a very very powerful historical accolade irrespective of the cast or the names involved certainly winning is the bit, uh, winning a prize is a big deal but often the deals are done before so it is about the film being i mean if you have your film in competition everyone will go see it if it's well received you will start making sales uh, usually you know all the sales are done by the time the 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 film has won so it's it sort of um it's it's sort of cherry on top you know at that point and everyone feels like they're a winner for having picked the film that won you know then it's just it's just sort of oh i got it right <laughs> when we picked up a prize for the killing of a sacred deer and it was my first can with hanway and um in a way, it's quite brutal when you have a filming competition. You have to stay till the bitter end of can. You know, we all usually leave a bit earlier as sales agents because we're done with all our meetings in the market by sort of Tuesday of the second week. But you stay on. Um, but it was all worth it because um, for the first time ever, I got my name called on the red carpet um, for the for the closing ceremony. We got out of the car and they, they they named all of us and the party included me and I was like, oh my God, my name just got called on the red carpet. That was the very, very first time that had ever happened. So that gave me a bit of a thrill, I have to admit. It was, um, it was a special moment for me. <laughs> I think the worst thing about the Palais is that you don't have anything to drink in there. And if you're there, especially if you're there for the opening ceremony, which is a long ceremony followed by an interval when they clear the stage and prepare the screen and then the opening night film starts, that's an awfully long time without drinking anything. Um, so I used, to have, <laughs> I used to have a special coat that had uh, like a sort of Burberry rain, an old fashioned Burberry raincoat with a kind of poacher's pocket in its lining inside which was big enough to hide a small bottle of water. And I used to get away with always carrying that in on my arm with a secret bottle of water stashed inside. But with the security now, there's no way you can smuggle a bottle of water in. So uh, I've been known to, in a very unladylike fashion, slurp water out of the taps of the ladies' loo, which I would normally never do, but it's just too much. I can't handle three and a half, four hours without a drop of water in an air-conditioned room. It's, it's impossible. So that's the, that's the one thing I would say about the Palais, is you die of thirst. <laughs> but um, who is ever going to miss Cannes in the film industry? No one's going to miss Cannes. You have to be a Cannes. Anyone who works in the international film world knows London-based publicity doyenne Liz Miller. Whether at Cannes for the festival or BAFTA for the film awards, no one knows how to maximize the red carpet experience for talent better than Liz, and directors and producers are often begging her to work on their films. She describes her behind-the-scenes experiences of navigating the Cannes red carpet. There is really only one red carpet. There are gala uh, screenings in all sections, but as a rule, if your film is screening in one of the sidebars or in another section in the official selection, you'll figure out how to get yourself onto the real red carpet for somebody else's screening. There is only one red carpet. It's one of those things that no matter how many times you've done it, it is very hard to be blasé about that experience. 
And whereas you might be on your own behalf and you really can't be bothered to get dressed properly to go and do this, yet again, you are inevitably with people for whom it is the first time. And it's very, very exciting for them, be they young or old filmmakers. Obviously, these days, everybody takes photographs of everything, but the can red carpet is a very, very exclusive photo opportunity. I'm not sure it was ever properly enforced, that that selfie ban, but I think what people don't realize is that there is an entire virtual military operation behind getting people to the carpet, getting them across the carpet, getting them into their seats in time to start the film at the appointed hour, etc. It, it, it involves an enormous amount of, of forward planning. You don't want it to look regimented, but it has to be. There are a lot of films in the Grand Théâtre Lumière, and the timings are really important. And unfortunately, the selfie-taking and any sort of extraneous activity on the carpet takes away from what we those of us who are promoting the films and those, of, those who have made the films are there for, which is to get their photograph on the red carpet. You know, I, I, I think maybe Thierry was, was being amusing in his pronouncement that it was, what it, I don't know what he said, vulgar and stupid or whatever, to take pictures of yourself. That's effectively my job as concerns the red carpet is to make sure that we get clear and evident photographs of the main event. And yet one thing that is very strictly uh, enforced is the dress code. There's always been a part of me, because I'm quite an informal person by nature, and and there's a part of me that always says, oh, for God's sake, you shouldn't have to get all dolled up to go sit in a movie theater. On on the other hand, um, this is a celebration of cinema. These are these are opening nights. This these are premieres. These are just as much an opening night as an opening night at the theater or the opera. And it's nice. It gives a sense of occasion if everybody's dolled up. And I suppose that um, on some level, again, for the filmmakers. It's very nice to say, look, everybody made such an effort to to make themselves look beautiful for, for, for you and for your hard work. There's always mishaps. I, mean, I remember being with an actress who'd been given a, a gown at the last minute that really didn't fit her and held together with safety pins and turning her away from all the cameras so that I, I could put her dress back together before the photographs were taken. There's there's always mishaps. There's always somebody who forgot his his bow tie in the pocket of his other suit, etc., etc. Of course, but you, you make the best of those situations. I think the only time it's ever been um, really a damp squib, it, it was literally a damp squib because the heavens opened just as we were getting out of the cars and of course nobody had umbrellas and everybody was walking like drowned rats up the steps and that was not particularly elegant. But you know the one thing that is quite hard, I don't like to hurt anybody's feelings and oftentimes you have to hive people off 
from the stars of the film and the director. You know, that a lot of times you have to separate somebody from his or her spouse, and that's uh, people don't like that. That's another part of my job, because the reality is that a massive group photograph where you can't distinguish who is who will not run, and nobody will see it, you know, and you, you've brought your film here at great effort and expense, and you got to get something out of it, and one of the biggest things you get out of it is your red carpet moments and God knows if the photographers don't get what they want they let you know sometimes you have to bend to the will of the mob in the end the, the reality is of course it's it's uh, commerce we're all in business here but we are also celebrating art in the end I think the uh, art should win the art should win any particular favorite moments for you over the years? I have a lot of moments. I guess being on the red carpet with Bjork was really fun because there's somebody, a huge star, but doesn't have the habit of being a movie star. So it was, you know, she was very giggly and it was a, a strange and wonderful experience, I think, for her. So that was fun. Uh, and more recently... For Andrea Arnold's film, with all of the very, very young people in American Honey uh, who had hardly ever left home before, let alone made a movie, let alone come to a red carpet in Cannes, and all of the kids started to dance, and, and Shia LaBeouf, who's a sweet guy, got into it also, just on behalf of all of the young people who'd never done it before. That was, I have to say, that was, a, for me, a gorgeous moment. And Thierry was dancing at the top of the steps. He was dad dancing at the top of the steps. Yeah, no, that was a beautiful thing to see. Lawrence Atkinson has been leading the London and Los Angeles-based communications firm DDA for more than a decade, and his company represents many of the top film financing, production, and sales concerns in the industry, both in the U.S. and internationally. Over the years, there's been some really difficult conversations. On the whole, if you have a chance to see the film before you go into a festival, you have a, an educated guess of how it's going to go down, and if you have the luxury of maybe testing it with the odd journalist in advance, you have an, even more of a luxury of going, well, I think we might be okay here. For the sight unseen, if you haven't seen it, you are just as, what's the word, concerned as a journalist is about if it's going to be any good or not. You know, all the ingredients can be there. I mean, we've had many films over the years where the director was marquee, the cast was marquee, the subject matter had been terrific, meaningful, powerful, socially responsible, whatever, and the film turned out to be absolutely terrible. And everybody just sits with their head in their hands at that press winning, hearing the boos or, or seeing the reactions and going, oh, no, this is not going to go well this afternoon. You know, to get your film selected is such an honour. But actually, that's just the start of it. Then you, do, then you have to hope the critics like it as well because a selection committee sees things in a very, very different way to a set of journalists. You know, there'll be 10,000 films submitted to Cannes of which the selection committee diligently sees many. Then they go up the ladder and, and they're re-seen and re-seen and, and, and argued uh, and, then, and then finally make that, that cut. It doesn't mean that they're going to be well-reviewed. It's just that the critical process got it to a point where they felt it was right for inclusion. And it could be for any number of reasons. It could be political reasons. It could be a great filmmaker who they owe us a lot to. Uh, it could be a fantastic cast. They just want to have them on the red carpet, things like that. Um, so the film may not make the grade critically, but it's worth having here. So then it's all about what slot you put it in. Out of competition is your nice, that's your, your easy slot. 
the ultimate aim is if you get an out of competition slot where all the critics go, that should have been in competition. That's golden. Literally, that is the best outcome for everybody. You get all, you get all the upside of a festival. You're in the brochure. You're in the, you have the official press conference. You have official press screening. You have review. You have all of those things with none of the pressure of competition and all the critical weight of should have been in competition. It's way better than those other ones in competition. You know, one of the key things going into any festival is to try and set the film up. I think as best as it possibly can be. Um, looking at you know who the who the reviewers are going to be, uh, who are be predisposed to like a, type, a kind of film, finding that out in advance, checking in with screen and saying who, who are you sending to review this, just so we pre-warned that it's somebody who might like or might not like that particular film. Um, trying to get our trade breaks done properly, so the director's got a profile piece or the financier's got a profile piece, all kind of in advance of when that film hits, because if it's critically acclaimed everything else follows. If it's um, critically mauled, you don't, that coverage is not worth as much the next day because they've made a bad film, not a good film. Festival strategy is a proper conversation that happens with lots of parties who are involved. And a lot of it depends on where the film is in its life. If you are coming here with a film that is already secured distribution and there are dates in mind, you know, here it can, you know, there is no doubt that Rocket Man has distribution. It's coming out very soon. Uh, so the, the, the play for that here is just a great big profile raising hurrah to say the film is here in Cannes, Elton John, you know, all the way. Uh, if the film's not sold, you know, then you look at Cannes as a, a, a potential place to sell the film. So if you're in official selection, um, you can secure a sales agent if you haven't got one already because it's clearly in selection. Your sales agent can use that as leverage to heighten the, the awareness around a film with the distributors saying we're representing this film that's in competition or it's in special selection here at Cannes. Uh, it, it puts its price point up, it puts its awareness up. Um, uh, so it's, yeah, it's a big decision to make. Can I see any trends? I think it's a little early on the trends front. Um, I think when we see when people start buying stuff, what they're looking for, that's when you can really see the trends. But I mean, from a business perspective, Cannes still feels as buzzy really is, you know. I mean, everyone keeps sort of talking about the decline of the market, but I mean, you know, the evidence is that still there's these just massive projects that come in and there's a lot of interest in them from buyers and life goes on as before. I think there's probably less people coming, but it's the right people. So there's maybe less holiday makers from companies here. There's more people who just make decisions. So, you know, all the companies represented, they might just not have the huge weight of staff that they once had. Um, I think what's a bit more tangible is the advertising seems to have dropped considerably. Uh, I'm looking at, you know, what past Carlton yesterday, which is normally a, a, a huge Disney installation on one side and a huge Fox installation on another side and whatever else. It's just some minimal branding for Rocketman and that's it. So that's it for this edition of the Media Business Podcast. Thank you to all of our guests for taking part in this can special. Thank you for listening. This has been a PPM production for Media Business Insight. I do hope you'll join us for the next edition. You can find out more about forthcoming editions at ScreenDaily.com. I'm Matt Mueller, and for now, it's au revoir from Can. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 